Hello everyone and welcome back to the Just Interesting People podcast. Today we are joined by Dennis and I'm so excited to hear his story. Um, I'm going to pass it over to Jeremy but thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this podcast and we really hope it inspires you and that you get to know him a little bit better and enjoy the episode. Thank you guys for tuning in once again. Um, so yeah, today we are joined by by Denis. Um, and he's actually you you've he, you've heard a little bit about him already because two weeks ago we uh, recorded an episode with his husband Adrian. Um, so we know a little bit about him, but we're gonna dive in into his life. Denis, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so so yeah. Um, like actually you've been <laughs> it's it's funny because uh, you've been one of the first name i've put in the list of people i wanted to interview oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> when i when we thought about the podcast i did a list of like i don't know 15 names and i think you're in the first five names i was like okay. i want i want to know more about this guy because <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah i i remember and I, I was saying that to rosie this week that the first time we met was actually at our first day breaker event uh, yeah. at the final you did um like before the yoga you did the sound yeah. bath and you had a big yeah. panda head yes correct yeah, yeah. uh yeah that and that fun. was the first time actually uh we had ex- well i had experienced uh with a sound bath that was the first time I was like, that's pretty cool yeah. <laughs> we really enjoyed it well that was actually for me that was pretty cool too because um i had done a few day breakers before doing sound baths um prior to yoga and um some of them had been quite small Hmm. and like there was one that was in a target parking lot in fort lauderdale and really there was like 20 30 people there (laughs) but at this one i started playing and then tim came late and then they told him that you should be wearing white so he got back on his motorcycle and went home and changed and came (laughs) back so i had all this extra time to keep playing and i'm just kind of sitting there doing my thing and i get very involved in it so I'm not really paying that much attention to the room. And then I look up at some point and there's like 400 people. Yeah, it was full. Yeah, the room was packed, I remember. Yeah, so that was quite unique. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so like we, we since that we had the chance to meet a few times and, and I've read about you on social media and, 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 and through Adrian and everything. And yeah, I've learned that you... So you do meditation, you do sand bath. Uh, that's what I've known you for. But like I've learned that you've been a monk, and then I've also find out that you on Spotify because you produce music, and yeah. um, and then last time talking with uh, Rosie, um, no, with Adrian. Yeah, we're like, yeah, actually, we spent like twenty five years in New York. I was all right. I didn't know all that, and I, I know that also you're the techie in the couple doing the websites and everything and doing all the paperwork yeah, yeah i can I, I i know what you feel with that, <laughs> <laughs> that that's me in the couple <laughs> um so yeah uh, let's let's dive into it um yeah. and i guess we can start by just like if you can tell us you know where you come from and yeah uh sure i grew up in in oklahoma actually which is kind of like a foreign country hmm. um and then I moved to New York when I was 21. And I had ambitions to be the great American novelist, you know, like the next Norman Mailer or the next Truman Capote, that kind of thing. But uh, I don't know, over the course of a decade or so, I just kind of, I was forced to come to the conclusion that I didn't really have that much talent at writing fiction and I wasn't going to be the great American novelist. So then I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do with my life? Um, 
and I bounced around for a few years. I, I got um, a series of, of uh, jobs in publishing and advertising that kind of were jobs that paid the bills, but they didn't um, fulfill my soul. They weren't really my calling, but I was good at them and I kept getting more. So I spent um, a lot of the time that I was in New York working in the advertising and marketing and, and publishing world. So that's where I get all my uh, all my knowledge about websites and marketing and email marketing and all that stuff. So now I try to um, I try to use those skills uh, to serve uh, causes that are closer to my heart. Mm -hmm. so working with um, small businesses and nonprofits, and Adrian and I recently created our own nonprofit organization, the Warrior Flow Foundation. So. Um, So yeah, I was in New York for about 25 years. If, if you add up all the years I was there, I kind of left and came back once or twice. Uh, there was an aborted attempt to move to Paris in 1992. Oh, wow. 91. That lasted about a month. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Yeah. Well, I was like, okay, I'm running out of money. I don't really have, I can't get a work permit here. So I better uh, put okay. myself on a plane and get back to America before okay. they put me on one and <laughs> okay. tell me I can never come back. <laughs> you know, so, when you're 22, you do this kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm interested to tell me about life in New York. How, how was that? Cause I've visited there, but I've never, Yeah. I went for a week and it was crazy. I can't imagine living there full time with like it, the amount of people there is crazy. Yeah. The amount of noise and pollution and just nonstop sensory yeah. overload. What, how was it? How did you find it living there for so long? Well, that's a, that's a good description of it. Um, <laughs> I have to say that I think, you know, when I was younger, in my 20s and 30s, I really thrived on the electric, chaotic uh, energy of New York. You know, it's a very fast-paced place. It's a very ambitious place. Uh, it's a very competitive place. And I think when you're in your 20s and 30s, that you can feed on that kind of energy yeah. productively. But then when you get into your 40s and now I'm in my early 50s, I just need a slower pace of life. Like I just need to chill out more and to jump ahead a little bit in my story um, about 10, let's see, 10 years ago. Yeah, a little more than 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I had been working in New York for quite a number of years and um, just kind of, well, I, I had started studying Buddhism and doing meditation really pretty hardcore. I was doing a lot of weekend courses in meditation and going away for week-long retreats or month-long retreat. And I was taking classes all the time. And then I, I started teaching meditation and, and teaching Buddhist philosophy. And then it, at some point around uh, 2008, I started feeling like, okay, I want to I want to dive in and see if maybe this this path of practice and study could be my full-time life. Like, and what does that look like? Well, it probably looks like being a monk. So I, I looked around at all the different places that one could go to explore uh, the monastic path. And there was one in particular that appealed to me because it was where um, a teacher that I have a great um, a great admiration for and I consider to be, her to be my main teacher Pema Chodron. That's the monastery that she leads. And they also uh, 
it's unique among all the monasteries that I know of because they offer the opportunity for people to come there and take temporary vows for a year, or then you can take for a second year and, and try it on and see if the monastic life actually fits for you or not. Because a lot of times we as Westerners can come to this very kind of exotic appearing Eastern religion like Buddhism and particularly when it's wrapped in all the trappings of religion and monasticism with the robes and the rituals and, and all of that. And we can come to that with a very romantic idea about what that life is going to be. And I have to say that that's a really skillful thing that they do by allowing you to take temporary vows because a lot of people spend that year, or in my case, I spent two years um, figuring out that uh, after the the blush is off the rose, you know, with the romantic aspect of becoming a monk or a nun, and then you're you're kind of dealing with it day to day. Then a lot of people find that it's really not for them. Right. Like they thought this was going to be a great retirement plan mm. for the rest of their lives in a way, but it's actually a it's a, it's not an easy life. It requires a lot of dedication and discipline, and it it means giving up certain things mm. that. I came to the conclusion that I didn't really want to give up. Okay. So I, I felt where was that geographically? It was in um, Nova Scotia, in a particular uh, as far east in Nova Scotia, Canada, okay. as you can go without dropping off the North American continent. Okay. Literally sitting on a cliffside with the ocean on, on one side and mountains on the other. Mm. And uh, it's very remote. It's an hour's drive away from the nearest town with a grocery store and uh, and a hospital. And there's no cell phone signal. Right. Um, okay. and, and that drive is through a national park, so it's completely deserted. Okay. And it's very isolated, which is wonderful because um, you, know, you have you have very little distraction uh, in the way of like entertainment and uh, very little interaction with people outside of the monastery, other than going to town and getting groceries every once in a while. And how many how many people were in the monastery? There were, that particular monastery is not very large, so it, the population would fluctuate you know, from time to time depending on the number of people in the season mm -hmm. and what was going on. Uh, but it would usually be around somewhere between 20 and 30 people. Okay, all right. So you're the first monk that I've ever had a conversation with or like previous monk or whatever the yeah, technical word is. <laughs> so I have so many questions. I'm so intrigued. Yeah. Tell me about a like a day in the life of somebody, a monk living in a monastery, what happens, what do you do, what's your schedule, what, mm. you know, I have no idea, please tell me. <laughs> sure. So um, I have to say that uh, compared to a day in the life of most monks and nuns in most other monasteries, nuns, I would say that this one is somewhat lax in, its, in terms of discipline and like we, we, we would wake up at 5.30 in the morning, which is, mm -hmm by Buddhist monk standards is pretty laid back. And our first oh, yeah. session in the morning would be at 6 a.m. I mean, there are some Zen monasteries where you wake up at 3.30 in the morning and that's wow. when the day starts. Not for you, Rosie. That is dedication. <laughs> and, um, and then you would, you would begin with uh, some, some morning chants and meditation. And then there was a short period before breakfast where everybody does their daily chores. Each, every, each person has a different assignment. 
and then you have breakfast. Uh, after breakfast, there's a, an extended three hour period of practice every day. So a lot of people would be meditating during that three hours together in the meditation hall. And then other people who are doing certain kinds of practices uh, in the Tibetan tradition, there are certain practices that are considered secret. Um, so you, you do them away from other people. And so some people would be meditating in their rooms or in, in the main shrine hall together. And then uh, there was about an hour every day of free time for exercise or walking or just contemplating or reading or relaxing, whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. It's your own time to do as you please. And then there was lunch. And at lunchtime is when we would break our silence. So that whole morning since you woke up was, was all in silence. And then at lunchtime, everyone becomes very chatty because they've been holding all their chit chat in since the previous night. <laughs> yeah, and then um, and then the afternoon is a work period, so we do like four to six hours of work. Every person has a different work assignment depending on their skill set and their, what they're drawn to. So and it's of course to help the yeah the, to help the, the monastery okay. to get help get back because it, you're really contributing very little in terms of finances. It's okay. just a very small amount that you're contributing to live there, but you're you're helping sustain the monastery by um, by offering work each day. Mm-hmm. So me, with my background in, in marketing, of course, I kind of went into an office job in the monastery and helped uh, I helped sort of bring the monastery into the 21st century with like electronic. Uh, marketing and a website and, and a blog and uh, wow. Facebook page and that kind of thing. All right, okay. Um, and then you have um, so this is another one of the ways that I say it's a little bit more lax than other monasteries. In, in a traditional Buddhist monastery, the noonday meal is your last meal of the day. Uh, but this particular monastery, because they, I guess they've had so many complaints from uh, pampered Westerners going there who just couldn't abide not eating after noon, they had compromised so that you could have soup, only soup, no bread, just soup at, um, at dinner time. So we would have soup, and then uh, after that, we would go back into silence until the following day at lunch. Okay. So about um, 16 hours of each day in silence, um, wow. depending on the day and depending on whether we're doing a special retreat or not, it could be anywhere between six and 12 hours of practice per day, meditation practice. Wow. Uh, once a year, we would uh, have a seven week long retreat called Yarnay, which uh, in, the, in India, you know, they have the monsoon season. So every rainy season the buddhist monks would get together in the monastery and stay inside because it was awful outside mm-hmm. the monsoon season and it was called the rainy season retreat or yarne and in canada uh, instead of monsoon season it's winter which is really terrible yeah so there's a seven week period where um you just basically stay in the in the monastery and, and actually Pema children usually come to teach us during that seven weeks, and it's a very intimate retreat container, and you set very formal boundaries, so nobody leaves the container of the, of the retreat during the retreat without um, certain kinds of permission. 
and people come from all over, all over the world to participate in that retreat and everybody's kind of piled on top of each other because there's you know the population um balloons from 20 or 30 to about 40. all right and um but that's that's the time of the year when um it would be most intense because you're it's really hard to go outside because it's I don't know if you've ever experienced a Canadian winter, but no, no. Um, it's like unlike anything I've ever experienced before in terms of winter, um, you know, especially in this particular place because it's exposed to uh, the Gulf of St. Lawrence on one side, which is basically an ocean, and the mountains on the other side, mm. and you have these like 100 mile an hour winds blowing down from the mountains and wind blowing off the sea. And sometimes the building would just be rattling, you know, and you're, you're sitting there perched on the cliffside looking out at icebergs floating by in the water. Wow. And, um, you know, ice and snow that's four feet high and you have to wear spikes on the bottom of your shoes because of the ice so you won't fall down. It's, it's quite that, a That is ordeal. intense. Yeah. Like, that's not just winter, that's like... No, it's really intense. Yeah. And I mean the whole ecosystem there like what we consider winter in like on the east coast of america uh like say in new york that's like 10 months of the year there <laughs> so there's like this intense 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 winter and then there's like these thawing periods on either side and then there's like two months where it's really really nice and there's about a week in the middle of those two months where you can actually go swimming in, right. in the gulf And how, um, like, b before you, you, you decided to become a monk and to join the monastery, like, what drove you into meditation, Hinduism, like, wh wh where, where did that come from? Yeah. So, I think, you know, if you look at the story of the Buddha, you know, the legends of the Buddha's life, there's this... Um, legend which you know i think it's largely a parable it's not meant to be taken quite so literally but he supposedly grew up in a palace as part of a royal family and had a very pampered life um, and his father kept him within the the palace and shielded him from the realities of suffering on the outside world and he he had everything that he could possibly want just kind of spoon fed to him all the time whether it was you know food um, sex or wives or whatever it might be hmm. that at that time was considered the life of luxury. And then one day he um, supposedly got curious and had his charioteer take him outside the walls of the, of the palace and and he saw a, a corpse and he saw an old man struggling to walk and he saw someone who was sick and these things supposedly were his first uh, glimpses of the realities of, of like old age, sickness, and death, which are three of the forms of suffering that the Buddha talked about. And again, I think that's a parable because it, it's, it strains my belief to imagine that someone could get to the age of whatever he was, let's say, in his 20s, without ever having glimpsed the idea that these things exist. But that's the story. And I think what it what it illustrates, though, is that 
that experience of seeing suffering, of experiencing suffering for the first time, um, sparked the Buddha's journey to seek out uh, a path of awakening and actually seek out the end of suffering. Um, that's often how the, the Buddhist path is described in terms of um, bringing about the end of suffering. So I think that that's a, a parable that is broadly applicable to a lot of people in the, in the way that they approach the spiritual path. I don't think that most people come to, if, if they're sincere about following a spiritual path, I don't think that they usually come to it just out of curiosity or you know, sort of randomly. I think that we all have some experience of, of intense suffering, perhaps it's a loss or loss of a relationship or uh, just feeling a, a great sense of a void in our lives and looking for meaning, deeper meaning than we experience in, uh, in uh, sort of the superficial uh, society that we live in. But I think everyone has some experience of suffering and I definitely came to the path with some, some different experiences of intense suffering. I was going through a very dark period in my life at that time. And um, the Buddhist teachings and, and meditation in general appeared to me at a time when I needed them very much uh, in order to really continue living. So I dove uh, very deeply headfirst into the practices of meditation, learning about them, studying them, uh, practicing them, and eventually teaching them. And um, I would say that it saved my life. How old were you at this time? I was in um, my very early 30s, okay. talking about, about 20 years ago, mm. okay. maybe eight, 18 or 19 years ago. And then um, there was, uh, I was involved with a 12 step group at that time. And they organized a weekend spiritual retreat in the Catskills. And they needed somebody to teach a workshop on meditation at the spiritual retreat. And by this point, everybody kind of had, had gotten this nickname, Buddha Boy because they all associated me with meditation and Buddhism because I, I guess I talked about it so much. <laughs> um, and so they asked me to teach this meditation workshop and I'd never taught anything before. Uh, and I was really uh, I was petrified about it. But I, I was asked and so I said yes and I stepped up to the plate and I did it. And um, that was the beginning of my path as a teacher. And people came up to me even um, a few years after that that weekend and told me that that workshop was the beginning of their path of meditation. So it just kind of went from there. And then another thing that uh, we haven't really talked about is that I've always been a writer hmm. uh, ever since I was a kid. And I started you know, dreaming of being a great American novelist. And I would, even as a, a 12 year old, I was writing or attempting to write fiction and novels. But then I would say when I was in New York uh, in the 90s, I started 
moving away from fiction when I realized that that wasn't going to be my my forte. And I started writing nonfiction, which was at that time it was like memoirs and uh, autobiographical writing, just looking back at my life and reflecting on things and sharing my my triumphs and my tragedies through my writing. And then after I got really involved in meditation and Buddhism, I began to write about that. And I started a blog at first, which was my, I still have it. It's about, uh, started it in 2008. So it's been, uh, 12 years. What was that 12? Yeah. 12 years now. And, um, I, I blogged a lot while I was living at the monastery, uh, oh. just thinking about the things that were coming up for me in my practice and in my study and also like the lessons that I was learning from life at the monastery. And I, I kept writing on my blog about these experiences. And then I realized at some point that I had written enough of material on my blog to turn it into a book. Oh, wow. So then I had to think about, okay, well, how do I take all these randomly written um, mm. blog pieces and thread them into something that feels like coherent, like a book? Mm. What is the theme that ties it all together? So in Buddhism, there's this teaching uh, called Buddha nature, which is the idea that we all have the seed of enlightenment, or enlightened mind, awakened mind and heart within us already. In fact, it's, it's already who we are. It's just that we don't see that and we, because it's covered over by a lot of um, obscurations and habitual mm -hmm. patterns of mind. And like we talk about two veils that obscure our understanding and our vision of that the cognitive veil, which is like all of our, our misunderstandings about the nature of reality, which are uh, mistaken perceptions. And then the, the emotional veil, which is all of our, um, negative emotions and emotional patterns like anger and, and greed and hatred and jealousy and so forth and these two veils the cognitive and the emotional through practice they gradually get peeled away layer by layer like an onion and we start to see more and more the, our own true nature and the nature of the world that we live in and when they're fully peeled away then we're fully awake but it's not that the practices uh, give us anything that we didn't have already they simply reveal what's already there by okay. peeling away uh, that which blocks our our perception of it and our, our ability to be one with it yeah i like the image of the onion i i, I did the training a few months ago like six months ago and and during these trainings it had this image of everyone is born like as a diamond like when we're a baby we're all diamond we're perfect we don't have any yeah, every, everything is good. And then life happens, education, parenting, everything happens. And we cover ourselves with <laughs> self-limiting belief and, and a bunch of things. And, and we become whatever we become. But originally, like, we are still born this way with everything that we need and, and that we have. And, and yeah, like you, we need to peel all those layers of whatever it is to to go back to our real real self yeah, yeah. i would say that um buddhism traditionally takes uh, a longer view of things 
So we're looking not just at this lifetime, but uh, Buddhism traditionally takes a multiple lifetimes mm -hmm. view of things. So it's not that every, uh, you know, looking at it from the Buddhist point of view, it's not that every baby when they're born is, is perfect because they're bringing into this lifetime a whole bunch of karmic complications that they come dragging with them into this life. But that, but what you're saying is, is still true because underneath that whole process of, um, actually the, the Buddhist teachings on reincarnation or, or rebirth say that we're kind of helplessly blown from one life to the other by our karma, by the, by the karma that we create for ourselves, which lives as kind of, uh, grooves or, uh, you know, ripples within our mind stream or seeds. That's maybe the best analogy that we have. We carry these seeds with us mm -hmm. in our unconscious. And then when they meet with the right conditions, like a, a, a seed by itself doesn't produce a plant or a tree. Right. It has to meet with the right soil and sunlight and water. And then it, it grows into what it will inevitably become. And so the idea of, of karma is, is sort of like that, that we carry all this stuff w within us that when it meets with the right conditions, it comes to fruition. And so a fully awakened being from the Buddhist tradition, or at least from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, which has a particular um, investment in this, this idea of multiple lifetimes, uh, a fully awakened being can actually choose where and when they're reborn and how they're reborn because mm. they they're no longer just compelled blindly by their own karma but they actually are awake enough to choose so you, in the tibetan tradition you have uh, this idea of like if you look at the dalai lama he's supposedly the 14th dalai lama who's been right. reincarnating for 14 lifetimes as the dalai lama in order to come back and benefit uh, beings through through being the dalai lama and you have a number of those kinds of uh, beings that, that are called tulkus or uh, reincarnated lamas who supposedly have you know, pledged to keep coming back to this realm and keep reincarnating in their lineages in order to bring the teachings back and, and keep them alive for the next generation. And well, <clears throat> did you, I was wondering, cause yeah, I, I... I don't know. In in my, uh, I I didn't know that in the U.S. or in uh, Western society, I guess even Europe, we had a monastery. I thought you had to go to India or Nepal or Tibet to become a monk. Um, did you consider that going over there, or that was just I don't know, technically too complicated? Or uh, yeah, it did seem very complicated, <laughs> but um. I think my choice of going to this particular monastery was because I had already been involved with the Sangha, the, you know, the Buddhist uh, community that this monastery is part of. And um, although I'm no longer involved with them, and they've, uh, they've experienced a great deal of controversy recently that we could get into during another podcast, um, I was drawn there because of Pema Chodron. The, the main teacher at that monastery okay. and my connection to her and I still consider her to be my main teacher hmm. although we don't talk very often okay so I have a question 
Um, going back on the book that you said, so you said that you wrote loads of blog posts and you thought you had enough for a book. Did you publish the book? Are you still working yeah. on that? Where's... So that was actually the first of my two books that I've published. Um, so I called that one You Are Buddha, which is um, the subtitle was A Guide to Becoming What You Are. So it was all the thread that I found to tie all those random blog pieces that I had written together was this idea of Buddha nature. And um, that through the study and practice of, of the path of awakening, you are uh, becoming what you already are, which is a kind of, there's a, there's a koan, if you, if, you, if, you, if you know what a koan is, like a, there's a riddle there in the language, like how do you become what you already are? Um, and then uh, all that time, even before that, I had started working on an idea for a book about a particular set of teachings from Tibetan Buddhism called the Four Reminders. And one of my um, Tibetan teachers, uh, Zogjin Kalmuk Rinpoche, had asked me to spend eight weeks contemplating these particular teachings spend two weeks on each of the four reminders and at the end of the two weeks write something like a page or two about your insights into it and send it to me and so i did that and that was the spark that began uh, a contemplation of the four reminders that lasted for like 12 years because what what happened was that i i ended up taking those initial little essays that I wrote about the four reminders and just kind of expanding upon them and expanding upon them. And I did a lot of that while I was living at the monastery and during a, a three month writing retreat that I took after the monastery, um, I stayed in Halifax for three months at a, the home of a friend while they were traveling. And I just worked on this book. And then I got back to New York and, um, you know, life kicked in very quickly and I had to find a job and I got in a relationship and got married. And then, you know, my book just kind of took uh, a back seat for a while. And then when I came back to it, I, I looked at it and I was really dissatisfied with it because I had up to that point, I had taken a very traditional approach to writing about the four reminders with a lot of quotes and references to traditional teachers and what they had said about the four reminders. And I, I realized that this book, if I, if I kept it the way it was, was only going to appeal to a very small niche of people who are already uh, heavily invested in studying the Tibetan Buddhist path and know all this jargon and even care who all these teachers that I'm quoting are, you know, yeah. um, and I didn't want it to be that kind of book. I wanted it to be something that, you know, there's this thing that supposedly Albert Einstein said, and I, I mentioned it in the foreword to the book. And then I later found out that maybe he didn't actually say it. Maybe it was someone else, <laughs> but whatever. Supposedly he said, um, you don't really understand something fully unless you can explain it to your grandmother. Right. Yeah. Mm, so that was the approach that I tried to take with um, writing about the four reminders. Um, and I, I went back to scratch and, and rewrote the whole book from, mm. from, uh, from the ground up because what I realized was that I had, I had written this very traditional book that was only going to be understandable by a small number of people. 
and certainly not my grandmother. Yeah. So I I went back and I I tried to I'll tell you in a moment what the four reminders are and I know that that's kind of lingering out there. But I wanted to take what I perceived to be this enormous uh, wealth of wisdom that is contained in the four reminders and uh, can be applied to anyone's spiritual path, regardless of what path you're on, uh, and doesn't require any um, particular uh, affiliation with Buddhism or any prior knowledge of Buddhism. I try to take that wisdom and put it in fresh contemporary language, even if that means you know, taking the actual verses of the four reminders themselves and rephrasing it in new contemporary language. And so these are teachings that are about a thousand years old. And like I said, they've been passed down over that thousand years in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition in, in uh, commentaries written by very venerable lamas and, and teachers. But even the most contemporary teachers that wrote about these, these teachings still did so in, in a way that felt to me very, very traditional and very limiting because only, again, only someone who's yeah, not, deeply not embedded in the path is going to, to hear the, the wisdom. So what I, I did was really um, step back and look at what is this, what is each of these reminders trying to say? And then I put it in the simplest possible language and, and go from there. So the four reminders are basically a set of teachings that are trying to reorient, help us reorient the mind in the direction of awakening by reminding us of four fundamental truths about our lives that we tend to either forget or get in denial about or paper over or ignore for what you know, in, in a million different ways uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. So the first reminder is about really appreciating your life and making sure that you don't waste it, doing something meaningful with it. So you know, realizing the the good fortune that we have in this life and not letting it go to waste hmm. but actually um, using it to accomplish uh, the, what's most important which from the the point of view of the buddhist path of awakening is is realizing the truth uh, waking up and then the second reminder is really about impermanence and death which is another thing that we tend to want to ignore or forget about. So I phrased it as life is short and then you die. Don't waste time. Those two reminders kind of go hand in hand because when we, part of realizing the preciousness of this life and the opportunity that we have for awakening in this life is realizing how short uh, this life actually is, mm. how little time we have left. Um, we tend to go through our lives thinking that we have all the time in the world. Yeah. You know, and right now we're in a we're in a historical moment with the the pandemic that's going on, where we've all been reminded with a collective slap in the face that we don't have 
uh, you know, the ground under our feet is not quite as solid as we thought it was, and we yeah. don't have unlimited time, and things might change dramatically or disappear yeah, at any moment. And so uh, part of contemplating the second reminder is is coming to terms with the impermanence of everything in our lives, and most of all, coming to, coming to terms with our own impermanence, the fact that we, we are going to die we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how much time we have left. Um, so there's no time to waste. Mm -hmm. And then the third reminder is really sort of about karma. Um, real, remembering that uh, everything that we think and do and say ripples out into our lives and the lives of those we interact with, and it has implications and repercussions. So, um, it has a lot to do with ethics and, and uh, living our lives in a way that allows our, our conscience to be at peace. But the way I phrased the third reminder in the book was you create your own reality, make sure it's a good one. Mm -hmm. So to some degree, we're always creating our own reality. Not that we control all of the circumstances that come to us, but, uh, like Victor Frankl said, um, there's a space between there's a space between stimulus and response, and in that space lies the power to choose how we respond, and in that choice lies our potential for freedom. Mm. So, Speaking of Buddha, <laughs> yeah. so then the fourth reminder is. Um, about recognizing all the ways that we that we go in circles in our lives, we get caught in patterns and stuck in uh, stuck in in um, well, there's a, a there's a traditional teaching about the six realms of existence in, in the Buddhist cosmology which ranges from the lowest hell realms to the highest God realms and then the human realm is somewhere in between. And this is not, from my perspective, again, like the story of the Buddha, it's not meant to be taken quite so literally, like these are actual places, although some people believe that, but more like uh, these are six states of mind in which we can get trapped. And and then that becomes our whole reality because we're trapped at looking at certain, looking at things through a certain lens. So, for example, um, one of the realms is called the hungry ghost realm, which is where uh, the beings in the hungry ghost realm are depicted as having these very thin necks and these very big bellies, and they're they're so hungry and thirsty that they can't get any nourishment or water into their their bellies, so they're just miserable, and, and it's just kind of a it's an image of the state of mind of addiction and craving and dissatisfaction, never being able, like the Rolling Stones say, can't, can't get no satisfaction. Um, and then the hell realm is just kind of this depiction of like somebody who goes through life just uh, at war with their world, always angry, like Donald Trump. You know, it's just, he's living in a continual hell realm because he's just angry and at war with everybody all the time. So, um, 
so even all the way up to what are considered to be the highest realms, the God realms, where everything's just bliss and pleasure all the time, and there's nothing to worry about, and all of that. But all the thing about the way that Buddhism looks at these six realms is, is that they're all part of this impermanent world that's always changing. So even if you might be uh, like you know, you're Brad Pitt and you're you're living in the God realm, and you've got You've got it made according to society standards. You've got everything you could possibly want uh, that's still impermanent. And really from the God realm, there's nowhere to go but down. So um, everything is always fluctuating and we're always cycling through these realms uh, and, and getting stuck in one for a certain period of time and then getting stuck in another for a certain period of time. And the fourth reminder is really about realizing the pointlessness of getting stuck in any of these realms uh, and how important it is to just finally wake up and step out of the cycles of un unnecessary suffering. This is so interesting. I like that, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I can resonate. Like, I, I, for me, like the way I would put it in my world. It's like the first one is basically like be grateful, be grateful for what yes. you have and be grateful for life. The second one is more like to have a sense of urgency in life, like stop taking the next minute or tomorrow for granted. Um, the third one I feel is like be kind because everything has got, uh, everything you do has got repercussion. So be kind because because you never know what's going to happen and, and 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 every action you take has an impact on every everyone else yeah um and yeah and and the third one is that uh, yeah the fourth one is is like a sense of uh like everything pass everything is temporary like nothing is 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 fixed in life so make the most of what you have now be because things are going to change and even if you're down things will go up and if you're up things might go down it's like the, the ups and downs of life yeah mm -hmm. i can really yeah i can i can see like how how you can apply all all those principles in in our lives yeah, yeah. and things so, like you wrote a book about it that can resonate with people who don't know anything about buddhism that's amazing because yeah. you make it accessible yeah. and you know everyone can relate to these four things there's nothing crazy or absurd that you're saying you know you must believe in this random whatever yeah, like it's, right. it. yeah yeah so both of my books i i um i self-published um just because they they're they're books that still have a somewhat uh, uh niche audience mm -hmm. you know, the, the world of spiritual publishing is not a, a big world uh, even though there are some kind of superstars in that world, like my teacher, Pema Chodron, or Eckhart Tolle, or these kind of figures whose books are actually bestsellers. But um, I decided, you know, after, uh, obviously I, I tried the traditional publishing route, but I just wasn't happy with it and I didn't find the right fit. Right. So I decided rather than letting these books just kind of uh, collect dust, on my hard drive on my computer, I would put them out there in the world myself and just see if they find their audience and just let them go. It's like, you know, you, just, you have children and you just put them, you, you do your best to nurture them into adulthood and then you let them go. Yeah. <laughs> so if anybody listening wants to get hold of these, where can you find them? You can get them on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, mm -hmm. 
The first book is called You Are Buddha and a guide to becoming what you are. And the second book is called The Four Reminders, a simple Buddhist guide to living and dying without regret. Amazing. Um, so like Jeremy said right at the beginning, we know you for the sound baths. That's how we first yeah. got to know you. Where does that, that come in? Where did you learn about sound baths? How, when did you start creating music on Spotify? How does, how does that all tie into the whole story? Okay. Yeah, so um, I, I guess it was about two and a half years ago when um, I was teaching at a local boutique uh, secular meditation studio here in, in Miami Beach called Energy. And um, I had already noticed this, this great trend of uh, sound baths and sound meditation and sound healing and sound therapy, whatever you want to call it. It has built by many names. Um, but I was very skeptical about it. I'm very, uh, honestly, I thought it was a bunch of nonsense because <laughs> in the Tibetan tradition, you have these, these beautiful metal bowls. But uh, as far as I've ever experienced in, in my 18 years of study and practice in the Tibetan tradition, um, the only purpose of that bell is to be rung at the beginning and the end of the meditation session, just to mark that moment. You don't sing the bowls by yeah. rubbing it's the thing like, around. It's like a gong, basically. Just... It's not a, it's got, it's a gong. Yeah. But you don't um, make music with it. Mm -hmm. So... I saw all of this happening with people, you know, singing these Tibetan bowls and then lots of people were using crystal bowls. And I thought it was a bunch of new age nonsense, really. <laughs> and then I actually went to a sound bath out of curiosity at the studio where I was teaching. And I had a really profound experience of going very deep into relaxation and into, a, if you're familiar with yoga nidra, there's a practice called yoga nidra in the yoga tradition where uh, a teacher kind of guides you with their voice into a very deep state of relaxation and then you work with uh, an aspiration or a, a, a mantra sort of, sort of but you do it by becoming so relaxed that you go into what's called the hypnagogic state which is the state between waking and sleeping and you're kind of it's it's, it's like this little twilight border zone and you pass through it every night when you fall asleep and every morning when you wake up, but you don't really notice it because we're not trained to notice it or just, or to linger there. Mm -hmm. We just, we're asleep and then we're awake, we're awake and then we're gradually we're asleep. But we don't usually kind of hang out in that liminal zone between waking and sleeping, which is right at, it's where the border of the conscious and the unconscious mind kind of meet. So it's actually a really interesting and fruitful place to meditate because you're right there at that border and all kinds of stuff can come up from the unconscious. And they say that in yoga nidra, in working with uh, what's called a sankalpa or an intention, like you, you, before you do the practice, you form a very simple intention. Like I want to be, I will be more loving towards my spouse or whatever it is. And then when you get to the hypnagogic state and you repeat that, intention three times and they say it's like planting that intention in very fertile soil because you're planting it in your subconscious rather than just having it rambling around in your head as a conscious thought and they say that whatever intention you plant in that soil it's going to grow to fruition because you're planting it very deeply in your mind stream 
So what I noticed when I did my first sound bath was that I kind of went to that state, that lingering twilight state between waking and sleeping. And I was like, wow, this is a powerful practice. I kind of, I kind of want to start doing this and share it with other people. So I took a training um, and then I took another training and um, I gradually kind of, uh, through my second training, I gravitated towards this particular form of crystal bowls called alchemy bowls. They have a very unique etheric sound to them. But really, uh, Adrian and I, we both got into it around the same time and we started collecting all kinds of instruments, lots of different things from metallic instruments to crystal instruments to, um, to gongs and uh, percussion instruments that can be used in sound meditation. So I, have, I now have a wide range of instruments that I can draw on. And really this has uh, unexpectedly taken over my, my teaching life for the last couple of years because sound baths are, if you look at any um, sort of secular boutique meditation studio, the sound baths are usually the most popular classes that are offered. And uh, that's partly because it's, it can be a wonderful experience in itself, but I think it's partly because it's a much easier way to relax and meditate than sitting up and, and practicing mindfulness or something like that. So it's kind of, from a certain point of view, it's like the lazy man's meditation, but from another point of view, it's also a very profound practice in and of itself. So over the last two years or so, I've been teaching, uh, facilitating sound baths up to like four times a week. So, I mean, I, re I really have lost track of you know, how, how long I've been doing it, although it can't it has to be less than three years, but in that two plus years, I've done hundreds of sound baths. And, and then I started getting um, invited to do very large sound baths, like at Daybreaker, mm -hmm. um, which is where we, we first encountered each other. And then there were even a couple of Daybreakers where um, instead of doing a sound bath as part of a yoga class, there was there were all these different choices that people could do. They could do a yoga class, or they could do just a sound bath. So it was an hour long sound bath, and uh, I've done a few of those with Daybreaker as well. So I don't know. That's that's how it came into my life, and um, it's just kind of taken on a life of its own. And now, you know, during this uh, time of pandemic and isolation and quarantine. And stay at home orders, you know, everything in our worlds of yoga and meditation uh, has been shut down temporarily. And uh, unfortunately, I think I uh, haven't spoken to a number of people who are either owners of studios or uh, connected to people who are. I think uh, a lot of these places are not going to come back from this uh, economic downturn a lot of studios have already announced that they can't sustain the losses and they won't reopen yeah. and um, so one of the things that's been happening sort of by force almost is that we've 
everyone has been learning to relate to things in a new way through online um, channels. So Adrian and I have taken all of our teachings online. Uh, right now we're running and we've invited a whole bunch of teachers to be part of this effort with us. And we're currently uh, running a series of classes, about 90 classes a week, from ranging from yoga to meditation to different modalities of fitness to um, to bar, to Pilates, to sound classes. Say, it's crazy um, impressive what you two have done. Like, it's just beyond like 7 a.m 10 p.m every day yeah. <laughs> basically yeah it's like a machine so do you, you do the sound bolt the um, sound baths every day every at day. 10 yeah. or, is, or do you well, start between we, you both or we, we were doing it every day at 10 but we've uh we've scaled back a little bit so now we're doing it every monday wednesday friday and sunday so four times a week mm -hmm. uh, so i'll be doing it tonight actually at 10 p.m and um again i was a little bit skeptical because Part of the experience of a sound bath or a sound healing session um, is the being in the presence of the instruments and feeling the sound feeling vibration, the vibration kind of the energy. really literally washing through your whole body because mm -hmm. our bodies are 80 percent water more or less and um, sound waves travel through water so when you're in the presence of uh, of the instruments and a, and a skilled sound facilitator um, it's not just your ears and your mind that's going on the journey. It's it's your whole body and your nervous system and everything. And I was a little bit skeptical that that experience would translate well into just listening online. Um, but people have been responding to it really well, and they seem to enjoy it, despite the fact that we're not physically in the same room. Yeah. So I'm pretty happy about that. And so I know... Well, I think I know you teach meditation and do you do teacher training as well so other people can be meditation leaders? So we, I was uh, part of one uh, meditation teacher training that happened at Energy last year and I, I, was, um, I was sort of the architect of the whole training, put together the curriculum. But um, unfortunately, Energy is one of the places that I mentioned before that can't sustain the losses of this oh. um, of this time and it, it, I don't think they'll open their doors again okay. after this pandemic. But could you do it through, cause you, you founded a company as well. You, yeah. you founded a, a meditation company. Would you, is that something you would, you, you would consider to do it? Yeah, through definitely. Your own company? It's, it's in the works um, yeah. at some point. Right now it's just, uh, we're so focused on uh, yeah. <laughs> keeping things going online that I haven't had much time to think about, yeah. you know, when things <laughs> reopen, uh, what that's going to look like <laughs> and have you previously or would you in the future teach how to be a sound bath person whatever the uh, word is <laughs> facilitator yeah facilitator, absolutely yeah. that's that's um, something that i had actually been also planning and thinking a lot about before this uh, pandemic happened so once things are open again and people start feeling um, free to come out and participate in trainings like that it's definitely something that i want to do I was actually really inspired by um, a, a book that came out last year by a pretty well-known sound facilitator in New York City whose name is Sarah Oster. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a book called Sound Bath. And it's really like a textbook, of a uh, really, really well-written textbook about sound, sound healing, sound therapy, the science of it, the, the art and the practice of facilitating it. 
So I think that when I do eventually lead a training in becoming a sound facilitator, I'm going to use her, her book like a, like a college textbook for the yeah. training. It's, it's really that well done. Um, and your but, uh, your interest or love for music in terms of like producing music on, on yeah. Spotify and everything, does it come from the same place? Like, did you fall into mm. it two years ago or that was like a previous no, thing? No, it, um, it's completely different. <laughs> and I've actually, I've never done any recordings with my uh, sound meditation equipment. So I, at some point I want to try that and see. Yeah. It. But um, I guess about a year ago, I uh, I was I was looking for a creative outlet, and I was feeling really called to um, to try music because music is something that I love so much, and I've, it's it's always been a great passion of mine. Although I've never um, I've never really taken it up as a as a hobby or as a profession, but Adrian knows that I love to sing, and um, so I, I got this idea in my head to get a guitar and learn to play the guitar, and I was going to try to write songs on the guitar. But then I, I practiced so much that I got blisters on my fingers, <laughs> and it was really painful. And I had to stop practicing for a while because of these blisters on my finger. But I still had this creative urge that was calling me. So I sat down at my computer and I opened up GarageBand and I just started playing with stuff. And I realized pretty quickly that I could assemble, you know, just using found pieces of, 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 of percussion and beats and loops and, and vocal samples and things that I could assemble what to me sounded at least like semi-professional Uh, music and at, the, at that moment I was really focused on dance music. Dancing is something that I also really love. I used to be quite a club kid when I was in New York back in the day. <laughs> and um, so I produced this whole album of electronic dance music and um, that's called Ascension. So if you, anybody you can wants find to it on Spotify, right? Yeah, it's on Spotify, Apple Music, all those services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When 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 I when I've listened to it, I would qualify it as kind of like electro chill music. Like yeah. you've got like a EDM vibe, but still as well, like a yeah. like I, it's good music. I think to listen like when you work or something like that. It's, it's... yeah. What I did then after after that album was I started experimenting more in the vein of uh, like you're saying more chill music. So I was thinking specifically of music that, for example, Adrian could play in a, in a yoga class because I know what his tastes are in terms of music. So, um, so I started creating a, a slightly different, more chill, loungy kind of vibe, and I've released several tracks uh, as singles with that kind of vibe. So one of them is called Spiral. That's probably my favorite. Another one is called Rain Dance. And um, another one is called Portal. So those those are the three tracks that I've released that are in this new, more chill, mm. um, kind of trip hoppy vibe. Yeah, that's, that's so awesome that you can just like I'm gonna create music and then just create music and put it online. That's so awesome that we have that these days to just be able to do yeah. that. Like, <laughs> yeah, when you think about it, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm I'm going back in the past because it's been in my mind. Uh, yeah. How did you feel when you went back to New York after two years oh, in the monastery? Yeah. I mean, that that must have been like. So I actually thank you for bringing that back into the conversation because I meant to talk about it before. Um, you know, going to the monastery was quite an ordeal because I went, I, I planned things in such a way that I could go there and go with an open slate, so to speak, in terms of my life. So actually going with being open to the question of maybe this is my life path, like right. becoming a monk and maybe I'll do this, maybe I won't come back. Mm -hmm. um, so I paid off all my debts, I gave away most of my possessions or sold what I could. I quit my job, I, I gave up my apartment, I put a few things that I couldn't part with in storage with a friend. Um, and then I, I went to the monastery with a blank slate. And that was quite difficult and, and some weird ways it was like planning my own funeral you know just yeah giving away all this stuff and getting ready to go to this other place that i had no idea what it would be like really and then i would say that coming back from that into new york city was much harder than actually going there hmm. because well first of all i i came back into a sublet apartment that I found through a friend, which was right in Times Square. And also there were, they were doing construction on the street, digging up the street out in front of the apartment every day from like 7am until 7pm, even on Saturdays. Mm. And oh it, it was a constant jackhammering right outside my window. And so I came back from this life of <laughs> quiet and contemplation and relaxation and I came back to this very intense experience of New York City at its most um, noisy and oppressive you know right there by Times Square I'd walk out my door and go one block into the the noise and the the lights and the experience of, of Times Square and the overcrowding and I don't know I just it was it was very difficult to transition back into that life because my my it felt like my skin had been peeled away and i think to live in new york you have to have a pretty thick skin um just because the everything's coming at you all the time and you have to be able to move through life there with a kind of a a, a way of not letting things get to you because if you let everything get to you you just kind of lose your mind but i I came back from the monastery feeling very open, feeling very vulnerable, uh, you know, spiritually, emotionally. And uh, I just found that New York City was very harsh and aggressive and speedy and noisy. And uh, I found those things very difficult to deal with, especially the aggression, hmm. like people yelling at each other on the street, whatever it might be. Because I'd spent two years in a place where trying to do the exact opposite of that yeah <laughs> and how long did you manage to survive then after going well then, then you know your your thick skin starts growing back mm. after a while it did grow back and i, I became a, a regular new yorker again yeah <laughs> and i was able to tolerate things more but um 
also, I would, I would say, you know, the, the experience of going to the monastery is not like a, a retreat from uh, well, there's an expression in in Zen that the only Zen you find on the mountaintop is the Zen you bring up there with you. Oh. Or another way of looking at it is like the title of John Cabot's input, wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. So when you go to the monastery, um, you're actually entering kind of a pressure cooker. Right? because it's so concentrated and closed and small compared to the, the world we have, the world we live in out here as civilians, so to speak. Um, it's like you're living in a submarine with these 30 other people that, mm. and you didn't pick any of your fellow people in the submarine. It's just whoever showed up. And, and because you're all in this, literally in this, closed container where sometimes it's it's not pleasant to even go outside so you're stuck inside with each other inevitably there's going to be those people who just push your buttons mm. and it's not because it's just because you have buttons and if wherever you go you're going to find someone who pushes your buttons oh yeah sure because um you're wearing buttons so in the monastery, you, you're brought face to face with all of your own uh, baggage and habitual patterns and emotional patterns. And it's put right there in your face in this very vivid way because you, you can't escape. You're there in the submarine together. And this person who pushes your buttons is constantly rubbing elbows with you. And you have to, I don't know, at some point, either realize that you're the one who's, who's reacting this way and creating suffering for yourself or you just keep you keep suffering yeah because i guess yeah, even we all wear buttons but we can we control how we react when someone press the button and we can choose to react and, and get exactly. upset or hungry or whatever or we can just choose to let it go and and so there was this going. one person at the monastery that for a while i wrote about this in in your buddha uh, everything that this person did, I found irritating. <laughs> the way they walked, the way they talked, the way they, the way they said their prayers when they before eating a meal, like everything. I just I found this person to be very like holier than thou, and I couldn't, I just couldn't stand them. And I had such strong judgment towards them. And then I, I realized after a while that like. Okay, there's got to be something going on here with me that's it can't all be about this person, and this person can't be as horrible as I think they are. So let me look at myself, and I, I sat with it in meditation, and I realized that I had this certain kind of jealousy of this person and of the way that they related to their spiritual path, and which seemed to have a certain ease and a certain confidence that I felt I was lacking. And so really, I was, I felt, I found out that I was reacting to that. And that was driving all of these uh, experiences of judging this person for the way they walk, the way they talk, the way they said the prayers before the chant, before the meal, all of these things were really um, coming from my own emotional projections. Yeah. 
And when I realized that, and I, I realized that I could stop doing it, I found this enormous sense of freedom and just relating to this person as another human being. And actually starting to see the, the beauty of this person and uh, see beyond my own projections and judgments. So now a few years later, living in Miami, so you went from the cold, freezing <laughs> yeah. kind of to the hot and sunny Miami. Yeah. Um, I guess you, and I don't know, I'm just making an assumption here, but I'm guessing that after spending two years uh, living such a simple life, um, I guess you came back with like a new vision of life and um, i'm assuming that you you've been living a much simpler life now since since then mm. or is that just an assumption i'm making <laughs> oh, i think i think it's largely an assumption <laughs> <laughs> he likes to do that um, life uh, life uh, gets complicated you know mm. um, i think there's a like being in the monastery, there's a there's a simplicity that you don't experience out here in this um, the non-monastic life. Mm. It's it's something that we call choicelessness. So you in the monastery, you don't have a choice about what time you wake up or what you do when you wake up. You go to the meditation hall and you do the practice with everybody else. And you, you do the chants, uh, even if they don't make sense, and you, you do the meditation, and then you, you do your chores, and then you do your, your meditation after breakfast, and then you, know, you don't choose what you wear. You wear the same robes as everyone else, and you shave your head. You don't wear any jewelry or anything to adorn yourself. Um, you don't choose what you eat or when you eat it. You, you eat what's placed in front of you at yeah. the time that it's placed in front of you. You don't choose uh, just to go watch a movie to escape. You know, we did have a movie night once a week, but it's the film is chosen by vote. And if you don't like the film, yeah. you don't have to watch it. Mm-hmm. You can go to your room and read a book or go to sleep. And so there's all these aspects of life where the element of choice is removed. And that's another aspect of life, like the rubbing elbows with people and getting their buttons pushed. Like at first, you notice, and I think almost everybody goes through this in that context, you notice all this resistance building up to the routine, to the, the things that you are, you have to do that you don't want to do, yeah. or to the food that you don't particularly like. Like I had this thing with these, every, they had kind of a rotating menu that would come back and haunt you every couple of weeks. And so like there were these burritos that I just really didn't like because they were very bland. And I would, I noticed getting my, myself getting so upset about this burrito every time I would have to eat burritos. And there are so many other aspects of, of life at the monastery. And sometimes we could get into these patterns where we would talk about it to each other you know, as fellow monastics and then we would start these complaining sessions and start reinforcing, reinforcing each other's negativity about certain aspects of life in the monastery and kind of getting into a group complaint state of mind, which reinforces the individual complaint state of mind. But then at some point, I think you have to realize that 
this whole situation is just what it is and you're not going to change it and you can just learn to accept it and, and be a much happier person or you can go on complaining and making yourself miserable and putting up resistance to it and going sort of going to war with reality and i i, I talk about that a lot in my teachings these days the idea of the pointlessness of going to war with reality because reality always wins yeah uh, so at some point in that process i i realized that i was making myself really miserable through all the resistance that i was putting up towards various aspects of life there in the monastery and i just relaxed with it all and then from that moment it was it was largely okay um, and i think that that's something that is, is a little bit different from our life out here because out here we have endless choices that's a privileged statement not everybody has endless choices about everything but uh, you know we, for the most part a lot of us can choose what we want to eat when we want to eat it we can choose when we want to go see a movie at the theater we can choose uh, how we want to spend our time we can choose what we want to wear uh, how we want to look and present ourselves to others, uh, where we want to go at a certain time and what we want to do. And, and everything is like choice, choice, choice. And we can get very um, kind of spoiled and take everything for granted in a way that, you know, the life of the monastery made you, eventually you become grateful for the burrito that you dislike because you, you realize that you actually have a burrito and like there are lots of people in the world who don't have a burrito yeah. and would, they would give anything they have to eat that burrito. Um, so the, I think the, the practice of choicelessness was a great training. I think it's similar in some ways to what people who are like in the military maybe go through with their training. But they, don't, they also don't have a lot of choices about the way things are done. Um, so I, I think that was one of the great trainings that I took away from um, from the monastery. And I guess this is a roundabout way of answering your question. I would say if there's anything that I carried with me from those two years at the monastery, and it was really uh, it keeps coming back and it, it keeps uh, resonating for me as a teaching. It's what I learned from choicelessness. You know, I can get very caught up in my preferences about things. Like things should be this way. This person should do this, and you know, all this should, 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 and these ideas of uh, how things should be. But then I find that I can also just be really okay with eating the same thing every day, like, and being totally okay with that. Like, I don't have to make everything about my choices. In fact, there's a great teaching in, um, in the Zen tradition, one of the, what are considered the, the eight Zen patriarchs uh, from the Chinese Zen tradition, Seng San, who lived around, I think, the eighth century, maybe, or maybe sixth century or eighth century, I think, I can't remember exactly when he said, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. 
but if you make the slightest distinction between good and bad, between what you like and what you dislike, then heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. Uh, this is, he said the struggle of one's likes and dislikes is the disease of the mind. That's pretty true. You think about it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. I feel like <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's already been almost yeah, we could like for a while, like, yeah. an hour and 20 minutes. I could <laughs> talk to you for hours. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Thank you. You too. It's so interesting. It's so nice to, I don't, yeah, hear about these things that like I'm completely, I don't know if it's ignorant or oblivious or I don't know. Like I've I've never studied religion particularly. I don't know anything about yeah. it. So it's been so interesting to hear your stories and to hear the things that you've learned and the good and the bad side of also being in the monastery. Because I feel like like you said at the beginning, people think it's going to be this dream life and this like incredible experience well actually there are you know things that you didn't particularly enjoy and I think that's interesting as well to talk about and to kind of listen to as well I've just I've so enjoyed this conversation (laughs) no yeah no we I think we will have to carry on this conversation around a a dinner table the four of us yeah for sure and I'd just like to add also that um because I I do have that reputation of like being Buddha boy um (laughs) and we've talked a lot on this podcast about about my experiences with Buddhism and living in the monastery and everything. But I'm also like, especially in the last few years, and this is part of why I wrote the Four Reminders book the way I did, I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical towards isms than I used to be, you know, and the idea of like, a, I don't know, religiosity. And I think part of, actually part of my, my perspective on all that was shaped in the monastery. And I, I one of the reasons that I chose to leave the monastery is because I felt this kind of allergy towards religiosity and and the, the pompous nature of religion and ritual and, and all of that that really didn't appeal to me. And I'm, I'm very interested in r- relating to spirituality in a way that uh, is, is much more direct and simple. Uh, so since I left the monastery, I mean, of course, Buddhism remains like a cornerstone of my spiritual life, and it's where I've done the most practice and and done the most study, and uh, I still regard it as uh, as a cornerstone. But I also I try to draw inspiration from many different places, not just from from Buddhism. So I'm very um, I'm very interested in and very. Uh, moved by teachings of certain other traditions like after i came out of the monastery i became a yoga teacher and so the the whole yoga philosophy uh, that's actually predates buddhism by several thousand years is is such an interesting and rich um, system of philosophies and in particular one of the things that really appeals to me is the advaita vedanta non-dual school of wisdom and some teachers who are currently living and, and doing what are called sort of direct path teachings. Mm-hmm. So uh, people like Muji and Ajashanti and um, this guy whose books I've been devouring recently named Rupert Spira. Um, so he has these little books like Being Aware of Being Aware. And it's a very small book, but it's like uh, 
dynamite in terms of uh, condensing these very uh, powerful direct path teachings into a very small, very small book. But um, that idea of of um, I don't know. I guess I I just don't like uh, being sort of put into any corner. Yeah, uh, in terms of wearing labels. So I think it was Wayne Dyer who said, you know, that don't be Buddhist, be Buddha-like. Don't be Christian, be Christ-like. Um, that was what all of these figures wanted. You know, Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, Christ wasn't a Christian, uh, Muhammad wasn't uh, Islamic, but all, they all wanted us to embody the the central message that they were embodying mm -hmm. love and uh, awakening and wisdom and kindness yeah and yeah the way so I think I, that I, like personally i'm not like a, re a religious person at all but i feel like you can apply some principles of all those readings to your life and if the principles aligns align to your values of what you see as like life, life, life can be for you. I think it's more applying, yeah, principles. But yeah, yeah, I, I agree with the, the whole like you don't need to apply a label. Like it's not because you're not a that you cannot apply some principles, some things that you believe from this from this book. Yeah. But as long as you're in that um, very traditional uh, life of a monk or a nun living in a monastery. It's hard to it's hard to toe both lines. Yeah. You have to toe the line with the, the life of a monk. So I found that, that it, after time, I came to the conclusion that, that just wasn't my life path. Although I, I, I learned a great deal from it, and I'm very grateful for the experience. But uh, my calling was to come back into the world mm. and keep growing and keep learning. Yeah. And also teach, <laughs> teach other people. Yeah, yeah spread yeah. the word and spread your knowledge. And yeah. And actually, I, I, I love teaching because one of the things they say is that you teach most what you need to learn. Yeah. And um, every, I found that to be the case. Like every time I, I teach, that I, I seem to learn more from it than anything that I feel like I'm able to share with students. <laughs> Always a student. <laughs> well, I feel like, yeah. The, the the day you stop learning, anyway, it's. I see that like the end, <laughs> really. Yeah. Now we always learn. We always need to to grow and, yeah. Never stops. <laughs> never stop. Yeah. Ah well, thank you, Denise, uh, for this amazing conversation. Uh, I'm really glad we did that. I'm really glad we got to know you uh, a lot. And yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to to keep this conversation going uh, Thank you, when this whole thing will be finished. Like I said, around the di a dinner table, it'd be nicer than through <laughs> through screens. Yeah. <laughs> thank um, you both. No, but yeah, thank you again for for accepting of being with us. Um, yes, really inspiring. You got a beautiful story. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Again, jumping off Jeremy, what Jeremy said. Thank you again so much for being on the podcast. It was incredible to 
get to know you more and to hear your stories and your insights um where can people find you um obviously with the warrior flow but then personally in yeah. classes so and... um i think as german was alluding to like before everything happened with the epidemic and the, the shutdown uh, i was starting this new um endeavor called uh, clarity dharma and meditation collective and we had our first uh, silent day-long meditation retreat at energy and you know before all of this happened shortly before maybe a month before all of this yeah. happened and then um that's kind of just on the back shelf a little bit right now because uh we're so focused on online teachings and everything but when things start to open up that will come back and i want to uh bring that forward as an offering to the community and, and help it grow. So that there's a website, clarityishere.com. And then you can find it also on social media, uh, on Instagram, clarityishere. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash clarityishere. Yeah. I'll link everything. And, uh, sure. On the website, you can find a number of my teachings, uh, video teachings and uh, audio. I also have a few meditations on the Insight Timer app, and I think I linked to them from that uh, website. But if not, if you download the Insight Timer meditation app, which is uh, you may be familiar with because it's like the number one meditation app out there. Mm. And it's a free app, and it has like thousands, maybe tens of thousands of meditations from teachers. It's kind of like the Wild West of meditation. <laughs> it has everything. But I have like six or seven uh, oh. guided meditations on there that you can listen to. And yeah. Cool. yeah. And of course, there's the music on Spotify and iTunes, oh, yeah. and there's the books on Amazon. So, yeah. yeah. Doing uh, a lot. So, um, I'll, I'll link everything in, uh, in, in, in my, um, my musical books. alter ego. Um, I, I tried to use my name, Hunter, but I found that there were so many musicians out there already using variations of Hunter. <laughs> that, so, I tried adding an another r at the end of hunter and then i tried adding another r so i ended up adding like three extra r's at the end of hunter. <laughs> so that's my musical alter ego hunter with four r's yeah perfect well thank you so much um yeah everybody please do subscribe to the podcast um go over and say hello to dennis for us say that you found him via us um share this podcast with anyone who you think might be interested in his stories um, and I guess we'll see you next week for the next episode. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you once again. Thank you so much. Thank you both.